Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. It is Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. And if you listened to us yesterday, you know this already, but let me do it again. For yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Mark and I decided we wanted to play for you a great interview we conducted with Admiral William McRaven. This is the guy who is the mastermind of the Bin Laden raid, but he's so much more than that, a career service officer. He also is able to just communicate and inspire so seamlessly. To start today's show, we're going to begin with the commencement speech that McRaven delivered at the University of Texas. And then we're going to get into teamwork and the fact, as we all know, that life is not fair. So here is part two of our interview with Bill McRaven. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do is quit. All you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. Is there something about SEAL training that is different than any other part of the military? What's the, what, what differentiates the SEAL from, you know, the guy who's in the Army? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I will tell you, I think a lot of, almost all the Special Forces training uh, are similar uh, in terms of, you know, there's a selection process where, you know, you're looking for, in, in my case, they were all men. Uh, you're looking for men that you think are going to make it through training. Uh, you're trying to ensure that they have kind of the, the right stuff. All of the special forces training, the ranger training, the SEAL training, I would say the, the thing that differentiates SEAL training is obviously the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a lot of uh, my great uh, Army brethren, um, you know, didn't like the part about being cold, wet, and miserable. Mm. That doesn't make them any less tough. Let me tell you, I have seen some of the toughest men I've seen are Army Rangers and Army Green Berets. And, uh, and uh, we like to think SEAL training is the toughest military training out there. Uh, but I think uh, all of them stack up as being pretty tough. Yeah, it would seem so. Um, so one of the other pieces of this, and as you go through and you give the the little things that can change your life, you do talk about um, making sure that you have good teammates right. and, and find someone to help you paddle. In, in the book also, you give some great examples in your own life. But I'm just wondering, like, in your not just career, but in your life, talk a little bit about the reliance on others, that team-based approach, because I do feel a tiny bit like sometimes that's lost in this current culture where everyone's sort of sitting alone at a screen, feeling disconnected. How do those connections really foster success? Well, I talked a a little bit about it in the speech, and then I kind of call it out a little bit in the book. Uh, But when you go through SEAL training, you're giving what we refer to as an inflatable boat small. It's uh, about an 8 to 10 foot little raft, rubber raft, and you carry it everywhere you go. And the purpose of carrying the raft, it's a seven-man boat crew, uh, but the purpose of, of carrying it isn't just to carry the boat. It's to recognize that if you're going to get the boat from point A to point B, everybody has to work together as a team. And I don't care whether you're the officer or the junior enlisted guy. If you don't 
paddle the way you're supposed to paddle, if you don't, you know, stroke hard, if, if everybody doesn't dig in, then the boat won't get to where it needs to get to. And, and so the recognition as you go through SEAL training that, you know, you better be a good teammate first. We're called the SEAL teams for a reason. And in fact, when you meet another guy in the SEAL teams, you say, hey, are you in the teams? And so mm-hmm. this concept of being a team, everybody having a role to play for you to be successful is important. Um, and then in the book, I talk about the fact that uh, you know, I had a parachute accident uh, back in, in 2001. Up to that point in my career, uh, yeah, I, I thought, uh, like a lot of SEALs, that maybe I was a little invincible. I'd been, uh, I'd had some uh, some life uh, life threatening situations uh, in the air, uh, underwater, and other places, and I'd always managed to get out of it, but not this time. And so I got pretty banged up in uh, in a, a free fall parachute jump, and frankly, I thought my career was over. Uh, I was banged up that badly, but but fortunately, uh, I had a lot of folks, uh, my wife in particular. But my boss, uh, Admiral Eric Olson, uh, friends came by to see me, uh, you know, wished me well, helped me with my therapy, uh, my physical therapy. uh, And I would never be where I am today were it not for the fact that everybody came together to help me through that tough event in my life. How did that change you going forward when you actually did get injured? Did you did you change? Did your mindset change about how you approached what you did or how you approached others? I think, you know, up to that point in time, I always recognized the value of of team. Um, But I was never the individual that kind of needed the help uh, in terms of the the other team helping me. Uh, That was a point in time where I went, I'm just as vulnerable as everybody else. You know, life can be very, very fragile. I mean, I realized that once again, you know, my my life was uh, was spared and it was it all happened in the in an instant. I'd had a number of those in my career leading up to the parachute accident, but again, I, I'd always managed to do the right thing and gotten out of it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm badly injured um, and and realize that, wow, moving forward, this is easier than I thought in terms of the potential to get injured. So after 9-11, this occurred before 9-11. After 9-11, as I watched uh, my soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines and others and saw the the, um, the wounds that they suffered you realize that uh, you needed to be in a position, I needed to be in a position to help them, other people needed to be in a position to help them, uh, because we all need people to help us get through life. That life's not fair um, yep. is something that seems to have quite a bit of resonance in a, in your world, because unfair things happen all um, the time. You bet. And how do you get through those unfair things? Yeah, you know, again, uh, when we were going through training, uh, the... Um, there were a lot of folks that felt, it, you know, if they were the best runner that day, then they would be rewarded for that. Uh, if they had the best uniform, they would be rewarded for that. There was this sense of, if I perform well, everything's going to fall into place. But it didn't. Right. And and the this concept of being a sugar cookie, as I refer to in, in the chapter, uh, a sugar cookie was you, an instructor would just arbitrarily say, uh, you know, McRaven, hit the surf. You had to hit the surf. Uh, you know, get get all wet, then roll around in the sand, and so you're covered head to toe in in sand. And you know, there there was a time when you said, "Why? I, you know, I, my uniform looked good, everything was great. Mm-hmm. I should be rewarded for that." And the point was, sorry, life isn't fair. You're you're not always going to be rewarded for things. And so this understanding as you go through life that uh, you know, uh, life isn't fair. You have to get over it, and you can't spend your time you know blaming your parents or blaming your circumstances or blaming your bosses life's not fair 
Um, but if you if you press on, if you accept the fact that every once in a while things are going to just go, you know, not go your way, get over it and move on. And does that mean, though, as as a boss, because you're sure. a boss of a lot of people, that um, that you don't? I mean, really bad things happen. That's one thing. Right. But like when somewhat bad things, do you, are, are you hardened to that? In other words, I don't know. Like I, I'm feeling like in the military, that's a lesson. Like, of course, you have to move on. Like we have a mission here. But in an organization like, you know, I'm working at CBS and like, oh, a story gets killed. Life's not fair. Move on. And, you know, like you've just spent hours and hours right. doing this. And it is true. But do you get to sit on your pity pot for like five minutes? Yeah, probably every, everybody does for a few minutes, uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's just human nature. Uh, but the point is, don't sit on it for too long. Yeah, uh, like I said, uh, sometimes you you bust your tail and things just don't work out well. Can you talk a little bit about failure? Because I never associate. Um like I guess military and failure as in, you know like where how you come through that because sure. I feel like sometimes failure is it's you know can result in a loss of life and injury right. and like so how do you come on the other side of that that's a much more difficult thing than saying oh well life's unfair failure is right. big deal failure is big deal particularly in a combat situation uh, and you know fortunately by the time and uh, I was in combat after 9/11. I was a pretty seasoned SEAL officer. I'd been in about 26 years, and and I've had a I'd had a number of failures, not not combat related, but uh, you know a number of failures in my career. And you know you do the best to show that uh, you're better than your failure. But when it comes to combat, uh, your failures can in fact result in in the deaths of uh, civilians, unfortunately, and and some of your soldiers. Um, but but what you have to realize is you have to learn from your mistakes, uh, and particularly in combat, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, combat moves at a pace that, uh, that you don't control sometimes. We always say that the enemy has a vote, so you can build a great plan, uh, but the enemy may not react the way you expected, and unfortunately, you know, every once in a while, you'll lose guys. But a good combat leader recognizes that you, know, you can't sit on your pity pot too long. Uh, you have to say, what did I learn from that? How are we going to do better next time? But you have to be prepared to make the next tough decision as a combat leader. Mm. And, uh, and I think the difference between a great combat leader and a good combat leader is the great ones uh, overcome failure as quickly as possible. They learn from it, um, and, uh, and then they make the next tough decision. Because if you're not prepared to make the next tough decision, then you're going to lose more young men and women. And so that's the important thing to recognize in combat. Okay, that's it for our Sunday version of the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. If you would not mind, please share this with people that you know. And if you have not become a subscriber yet, it's time. You can subscribe anywhere you get your favorite podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, wherever. And if you missed any shows, just go to our website, JillOnMoney.com. You can see the stuff that I write. You can check out the beautiful resource section that Mark maintains. Don't forget, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. It is free and it is well worth your time. Okay, we will talk to you tomorrow.